Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. What's interesting is uh, Barak or Barak or however you pronounce his name um, is listed in Hebrews uh, in the New Testament as one of the people to look to for understanding what true faith is. Um, He is in uh, Hebrews 11 what's called like the hall of faith where the great heroes of the Old Testament are expounded and saying look at these people to understand what faith is. He's one of the people listed. And... um, So, we're going to look at this passage, and if you've been coming to RUF, we're reading Judges. And one of the reasons we're reading it is because it is in the Bible, and we think that the Bible has things to say to us in every single place. And sure, we're going to do the Gospels, and we're going to do Paul sometimes, um, but we think it's important to go back and read uh, these things that God has seen to be important that teaches about himself. You've seen a pattern in Judges if you've been coming, and if you haven't, there's a cycle. Judges is a very repetitive book. Uh, God wants to create an instinct in Israel, but also in us, that there is a storyline to all of reality. And the way he creates that instinct in us to, 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 give it, uh, to make it our grid or our framework for, under, framework for understanding all of reality is by repetition. He's saying, this is the story of you. This is the story of reality. This is the story of God's people. This is the story of everything. Namely, that God made the world good and to be enjoyed uh, in His presence. And sin happens when we look to anything other than Him for identity. Um, Instead of looking for Him and identity as children in His image bearers. And the two main words for this in the Bible are sin and idolatry. This always leads to slavery. To your life being beholden to whatever it is that you have given it over to. Whatever you place your identity in. Even our own desires can become slavery to us. God's wisdom sometimes that He even lets us suffer deeply in our sin and idolatry and so that we come to the end of ourselves and we cry out to the Lord for deliverance who can save. And He does that. And that's the cycle of judges. That's the cycle of humanity. It's the cycle of our hearts. And each week we're given a different episode in Israel's history that repeats that cycle. They, they abandon the Lord. They fall into sin. They experience the slavery of sin. They cry out to the Lord and He delivers them. Over and over and over again, he's saying, that's the story of all creation, that's the story of reality, that's the story of Israel and us. So pray with me now, and we'll look at this one. Father, thank you for these words, and this story, as confusing as it is, it certainly grabs our attention. And I pray that we would see in this uh, pictures of faith that we can understand and that speak to us in our situation now. Teach us, Father God, in your name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do this week, in these cycles... Every story has a couple of uh, details that's unique to that story. And so we'll key on those details each time. The story of sin, slavery, supplication, salvation. And what I want to say, we're actually going to kind of key in on verses 4 through 9, the conversation that takes place between Deborah and uh, Barak. And what I want to say before that is Christianity is not just about getting saved, but it's also about being transformed. Uh, God's plan from the very beginning was to be reunited with His people and to transform His people. And the stories of judges, of God providing a deliverer to broken people who love anything but God and cry out to Him, it confirms what the Bible says from beginning to end, namely that God loves you exactly where you are. Uh, Israel is in a dark place of their own doing 
and God comes to them. You don't have to become a certain type of person uh, for His love and for His grace and His salvation. But He also loves us enough to not leave us where we are. And this is the side of true love that our kind of me-focused worldview has a tendency to lose. Because we are prone to think that if you love me, the way I know you love me is you're going to endorse everything about my life and not ask me to change. That's a way we've added to or actually probably taken away our definition of love. And that's not love, that's patronizing. That's why we feel like we, when we encounter that worldview or take on that worldview, that's why, though we have a lot of acquaintance, you will feel friendless. That's not love, it's patronizing. And though we don't want people to challenge that kind of, if you love me, you'll endorse my chosen lifestyle approach, here's the cool thing about this. Everybody betrays themselves on that. Right? If you loved me, you wouldn't disagree with me. Guess what? All of you will love your children better than that. Because you're going to disagree with your children because you all all have the instinct to be good parents. You will all tell your children, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to correct your lifestyle. You need to change. That's good parenting. You all all be good parents. But guess what? You're, con- you're actually also betraying your instinct to say to people in your life, Now, if you loved me, you'd accept me the way I am and you would never ask me to change. Maybe we need to change, right? Love actually looks in on the life that it cares about and asks it to change. God's grace and love is free enough that He loves us where we are, but He also loves us enough to not leave us where we are. So what is He calling to us in this text? What kind of change? And I think we can boil it down. There are a lot of things going on here, but the two things we'll talk about tonight is He is calling us from the worldly virtues of arrogance and insecurity. Which I, th- which I think is where we live, to the Christian virtues of confidence and humility. From arrogance and insecurity to confidence and humility. And in the story of Deborah and Barak, we actually see that God alone provides the means for that transformation. It can't happen outside of the gospel. So the first one, from insecurity to confidence. So I want to look at that dynamic. And really the question of the transition from... Insecure life to confident life is a question, actually, of who do you trust. It's actually an authority question. And so the story unfolds, and we're not going to touch every element because we touch all these elements a lot because they come up a lot. Uh, Israel's oppressed. It's a God-orchestrated response to their own sin. They follow after other gods, other hopes, dreams, place their identity in other things other than God. And He gives them over to the slavery that idolatry leads to, and they're oppressed by the Canaanites. Uh, And then we meet this woman, Deborah. She is called Deborah the prophetess. And this is really important. These are the details of this story that make it unique in the judge's cycle. She's a prophet, and what that means is she speaks the word of God to Israel. She represents God's word to his people. And when it says that she sits under a tree and Israel would come to her for judgment, you've got to remember what a judge is up to this point in this book and actually ongoing throughout this book. What that doesn't mean is she is most certainly not a courtroom justice who makes decisions on civil matters. That's what we think it is. But remember, if you've been here, what judges are in this book. Judges are not people that do that. A judge is a deliverer. When it's talking about a judge as someone who brings justice, they're not talking about civil disputes. They're talking about fixing Israel, (coughs) making things right again, restoring the people of God, bringing justice in that manner. 
So when Israel comes to her for judgment, what they're doing is they're coming to her and asking, and they're saying, tell us the word of God. When will he bring justice? When will he restore Israel? When will he deliver us? How? They wanted to know what God had to say, and this is her word of deliverance. She summons a guy named Barak and spoke to him and said, God has commanded you, gather your 10,000 men, take them up to Mount Tabor. And I, it means God, will draw out Sisera, the commander of the Canaan army. And earlier we learned he had 900 iron chariots. And that number, what it represents is vastly superior numbers and military technology. If you had 900 chariots, you had tens of thousands of foot soldiers. And Deborah says, go get your army, go to Mount Tabor, and God will give them into your hand. And this is where we begin to learn our first lesson. When Barak says, if you go with me... I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. This is the first lesson. These military specs tell the original hearers that Barak had no chance, that he was out of his depth, that the Canaanites had vastly superior forces and numbers and technology. It was beyond anything he could handle. It was beyond his limit, beyond what he could reasonably ever want to do. It was out of control. He was scared. Every ounce of reason and logic said, this is crazy and you can't do this. What does Barak say? He says, I will not do this unless you go with me. If you, Deborah, the word of the Lord will go with me, I'll do it. He shows us what confidence is. Confidence in the word of the Lord. This is the seed of our insecurity. Confidence in our own strength and in our own wisdom. Confidence in our own capacity to control your outcomes in your life, in your plans, in your dreams. The reason we are all radically insecure is because we believe this lie that if you want to and if you commit yourself, you can get anything you want out of life. And you can go through anything that comes your way. That's not true. That's a lie. You can do some things. Y'all can do some Stanford things that may be really exceptional, right? But do you know what your record will be against life 100 years from now? You will be 0-1. That's your career record against life. That's how it ends up. Do you know that? All of your power and all of your strength and your cleverness and your fitness and all these things... That's the record it's going to net you against life. Barak was looking at an impossible situation. The warrior, the general, the leader, the judge, and the situation was beyond him. He knows, going in with everything I have, I'm going 0-1. And when he had nothing left and recognized that's the result, he says, if the word of the Lord is with me, I'll just go. The reason we're scared is because some of us have gotten to impossible places, some of us are creeping toward impossible places, and we're looking at our resources and looking at our tools and still believing the lies. I can manage this. I can get through this. Because I'm me. Some of us, we're we're getting there and we're like, I don't know if I can manage this. And some of us are falling apart. And we're kind of actually hitting the wall and we're finding out we can't manage this. We have trusted our wisdom and our resources and you will, everybody in this room, will get to a place in your life 
where the sin and brokenness of the world is bigger and stronger than you. And any tool set you could acquire and any network you could form and any amount of wealth you could accumulate. And Barak's response in that moment is, I'll just go and try to do something that doesn't make any sense. That's really hard, that I don't want to do, that I know I'll lose at, that I don't have a desire to do, and I'm going to go because the word of the Lord is with me. He doesn't walk in beating his chest with bravado playing his pump-up music. Right? I'm going to crush this. The text is, I don't want to go and I'm not going to go unless you are sure the word of the Lord is with me because I know I'm going to lose. He's not thumping his chest. Insecurity is rooted in trusting ourselves. That's where it comes from. That's why one of the external hallmarks of someone headed down a very insecure path in life is chest-thumping bravado. Self-confidence. Right? Who's the most wildly public insecure sports figure of the last four decades? Does anybody see Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame acceptance speech? More accomplished, one more, more competitive, more talented than any basketball player ever. LeBron and Kobe will never touch him. Right? That's undebatable. We can't even talk about that later, right? <laughs> you know what he did at his Hall of Fame acceptance speech? Having accomplished more in his athletic career, maybe more than any athlete in any sport, 45-year-old man, when he was 16 or 17, was cut from his high school basketball team. He flew the guy out that he was cut for to his Hall of Fame acceptance speech in order to wag his tongue at him. That's pathetic and insecure. He won. <laughs> Everything more than anybody has, and he's the most wildly insecure public figure I've ever seen. The source of our insecurity is not because we haven't won enough, it's not why we're insecure. We're insecure because we trust ourselves. And confidence comes actually, this is this, this is the gospel's always upside down. Confidence comes when we're confronted with the impossibility of life and we finally rely on something bigger than ourselves. Something or someone who actually proves that with them, what's impossible to us is possible. So what does that look like concretely for us in our lives? What does it look like for us to say, all right, if I'm going to go with the word of God if it says it, even though I don't feel confident or sure. It looks like acting on the Word of God when it doesn't make sense to you. For example, habitual hidden sin, right? Something you're carrying, something you're struggling with. In the wisdom of our own strength, I can beat this. This is embarrassing. I can beat this on my own. Scripture tells us, confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. Be in the church. Let people carry your burdens for you. Hiding sin is going to kill you. It's going to deaden your soul. And what we say is, I know how to battle. I know how to fight this sin better than God does. So I'm going to hold this one away. It's too embarrassing. It's too dark. It's gone on too long. And in what happens as that process plays out over days, weeks, months, and even years? It starts out that you just feel very powerless and you're frustrated. And then you get more and more insecure. And you start feeling afraid and more embarrassed and powerless. And the longer it goes on, the more and more you're sure that you now can definitely not deal with this with somebody. 
because it's been going on too long. And then what happens? You get comfortable with it. Right? And then doubt creeps in, and then your heart deadens over time, and all of a sudden, this is what you're insecure about, is the fact that you don't feel anymore. You're like, wow, I don't even care anymore. You're not even insecure about maybe the guilt. You're actually insecure about the fact that you've lost your ability to feel because your soul's gotten used to it. And it started when you got to a place when you were powerless, and in that place of powerlessness, instead of following God's Word, confess your sin to one another, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, come into the family of God and let us bear your burdens with you, you said, I'll go my own way. You didn't trust God with your sin. That's one example. Another example, some of us may be wondering, if you're a Christian, find yourself in a place in a relationship with God where you're like, it's stale now. There's no more power. There's no vitality. I don't know why. And we find ourselves insecure in that place. And there could be other causes, but I think one of the big reasons may be because we've patronized God. We've claimed a relationship with Him with our words and also with some generic religious actions, involvement in a small group, RUF church, whatever that looks like. But we actually haven't wrestled with what His Word clearly says to us. And what, Tim, what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 is this, is the Word of God, here's what it does to you. It teaches you, and it, it reproves you, and it corrects you, and it trains you in righteousness. Here's what it doesn't say. He doesn't say, the Word of God will confirm all your preferences. And Paul's next words in 2 Timothy 4, his very next words after that, he says, So preach the word soundly, because there's a time coming when people will not want sound teaching of the Bible. They will want teachers of the Bible who will suit their own taste and preferences and opinions. And anytime you encounter the Bible and you catch yourself saying, Yeah, but I just feel like. Or, Yeah, but I just think. It's that place... That place where you carry that sentiment that's robbing you of the joy of friendship with God. You will not enjoy friendship with God as long as you carry that sentiment when you encounter Scripture. Especially when you encounter it in places that it pushes back on you. And because when you refuse to wrestle with God's clear teaching on areas of your life, you're no longer dealing with God. You're just dealing with a caricature of Him. Right? That looks... Vaguely Christian, but also a lot like you. Of course he would feel distant if that's how you're relating to him. Because your faith in your faith is going to feel powerless and stale because you stopped actually dealing with the one true God and abandoned him because you said on the issue of sexuality, yeah, but I just think that or I just feel like. You know what the Bible clearly teaches, but but I just think. Right? On the issue of loving your enemies, yeah, but in this case, it's different. Or on the issue of generosity, but right now, I can't afford to. On the issue of sobriety, yeah, but I just think. On the issue of submitting to the oversight of elders, we're commanded to do that. That means joining a church. You say, yeah, but RUF or small group, that's my church. On the issue of truth-telling, but in this situation, there is no sincere Christian faith without sincerely seeking out submission to all of God's Word and all of our lives. And if you have custom-made a God that vaguely looks Christian but doesn't frustrate you, then the reason that you feel that He is not there is because you have actually abandoned the true God and you've been dealing with a hollow scarecrow of your own making. That's why it feels stale. Because you're not dealing with God anymore. Hence, we're insecure.
Barak is showing us that confidence comes when you do what you don't have the power to do, what is unreasonable to do, you don't want to do, looks foolish to do, but you do it trembling because God's Word is with you. And for many of us, because we're good at this, we'll be content to appear strong, because we're good at appearing strong while being wildly insecure. We'll be content to do that instead of growing confidence in the Lord. Because the thing... This is the thing that requires you to have the courage to obey the word of the Lord. You have to get to the impossibility of life. And if you talk to all the interns for UF and myself as well, we will all tell you all of our stories that when we applied to do Christian ministry, the thing that qualified us in our job interviews, which is why our job interviews are the craziest, most weird experience ever, the reason that we were qualified in the church said, yeah, you should go into Christian ministry, is because all of us got to dark places in our lives, and we will all tell your story, tell you our stories individually. We got to dark places in our lives where we were out of control, and the dark was our own doing, and we just said, Jesus, help me, because I have nothing left. I'm just scared, and I trust you. That's why Ellie and Jess and Teddy are qualified for this job. The areas of your life where you're still demanding control and telling God that you know better, those are the seeds of insecurity that will quickly flood the garden of your faith and choke out fruit. Trusting God's word, acting on God's word, saying, I don't know, I don't like this, this is not what I want, it doesn't seem reasonable, but I'll trust you, God. A whole new way of living is opened up to you. Confidence instead of insecurity. You'll stop feeling like a pretend Christian, trying really hard to be Christian, when you get to the end of yourself and just say, God, be with me. Whatever you say, just be with me. Because really, at the end of the day, the question is this. Do you trust that God is infinitely wise and infinitely good? Or do you trust your own wisdom more? That's the question. That's the difference between confidence and insecurity. From arrogance to humility. The conversation with Deborah is not over. What's next? I'll go with you, Barak. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And it's in this moment that we see what humility is. Because Barak moves right into action. It's not important to him that he receive the glory. This story, like all of Scripture, reveals the reality that God uses and glorifies the least expected. That he doesn't conceive of power and glory the same way that the world does, the same way we do. As the story unfolds, the glory is given to a woman. Now, you've got to remember the context of where these stories are being told. This is a hyper-conservative culture. Women are not held in high regard they're treated like children. Their, their testimony can't even be uh, heard in courtrooms. It wasn't trustworthy. This is a hyper-conservative culture. And the last thing you would do in a culture like this is validate your religion by making women the heroes of your religious tradition. It would make your claims less credible. And here you have a woman prophet and you have a woman hero. And Jael is not just a woman. That Verse 11 seems like a spurious detail. But verse 11 is blowing the Israelites' mind because it tells us Jael wasn't even Jewish. She's not even an Israelite. This text was received by its original audience and it is radically liberal and highly subversive. Glory and honor 
is given to the person who would have been considered the least. J.L., she's a Kenite. She's the housewife of Heber. Sisera is on the, on the run, and the Lord routed the Canaanites. Chapter 5, you should read it later tonight. Chapter 5 is actually a song that retells the story of chapter 4. Um, we're told that God brings a torrential downpour. All the chariots get mired in mud. They're no longer effective, and God gives the Canaanites into the hands of the Israelites. And then Sisera is on the run. And the reason Sisera felt comfortable coming into Jael's tent is because the Kenites were allies of the Canaanites. So she calls him aside, and he assumes that he's safe. She asks, he asked for water, she gave him milk, falls asleep. She gets a tent peg and drives it into his face. Right? This is where like, all of a sudden Quentin Tarantino is directing the Bible. Right? <laughs> she gets the glory, and if you're not sure or convinced that she gets the glory, read the song of chapter 5. The climactic crescendo of the song is chorus about J.L., the hero. Barak lays aside glory, and the least likely, J.L., receives glory. And Judges, as always, is training our imaginations to understand who Jesus is. Barak is teaching us about humility, and J.L. is teaching us about glory. And what's remarkable about Barak is that he's not in it for himself. The mighty warrior, the great leader, is told, you're going to win and you're not going to receive glory. What if you were told that you will master the subject matter of all your classes at Stanford, but you will not get a degree and no one will acknowledge you in here? It's horrible, right? Your startup idea is going to change the world, but no one will ever know it's yours. You'll never be compensated for it. You'll help someone and not be thanked. You'll give and not be recognized. Our hearts are responding to those questions, and it's revealing. Can you say you really care for someone if a condition for your care is that you be recognized for it? Barak shows us what true humility is because true love can only happen in the context of true humility. True love can only happen in the context of true humility because love truly is when you long for and labor for someone's well-being, in this case, Israel's. And you don't care about who gets the credit because your heart is just for them. Because your heart's for them and not your own glory. And what arrogance is, is our soul screaming for credit. And loved people don't scream for credit. Because you have, in being loved, the very things that arrogance are always screaming for. Because if you are loved, you know that you are noticed. And if you are loved, you, are known, you know that you are known. And if you are loved, you know that you are embraced. And arrogance is screaming to the world, Notice me. Y'all notice me. Notice what's exceptional about me. Recognize it. Please know it. Arrogance is the response of an unloved soul to the world. The solution to arrogance, the path from hollow arrogance to secure humility is love specifically and necessarily someone else's love for you. The cure to arrogance is to be loved. And God shows us what His love looks like in the person of Jael, that His deliverance of Israel comes in the least likely way. A non-Israelite, a housewife, delivers Israel. 
And his love comes in the form of a wandering peasant being crucified. God, what he's doing here is he's bringing salvation from outside of Israel, from outside of their military might, from an unexpected source, from something small, from something no one could expect. So the Israelites could say, and just as they would sing in chapter 5, we know that only God delivered us. And this was none of our doing. Our deliverance came from somewhere we couldn't have expected, in a way we couldn't have expected. It could have only been God. It can only be a sign that He loves us. Their military might didn't save them. Barak didn't save them. The use of jail is to confirm this could only be the Lord's doing. Surely the Lord loves us. And if you read the story again, who's the main actor actually in the story? The people cried out to the Lord, and Deborah said, The Lord has commanded you. The Lord will draw out Sisera. The Lord will give him to you. The Lord will sell Sisera to the woman. The Lord has given you this battle. The Lord went out before you. The Lord routed Sisera. And on that day, the Lord subdued Jadon and the Canaanites. Do you see who the main actor is in this story? God had to take deliverance as far as possible from their hands so they could only conclude the Lord did this. The Lord loves us. The antidote to arrogance is being loved. And Jesus told his disciples in John 15, Greater love has none than this, that someone will lay down his life for his friends. And then Paul one-ups Jesus in Romans 5, which sounds weird to say, but I feel like he does. Paul says, While we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you all know the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly? And the Bible nowhere says Christ died for the godly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe for a good person one will die. But God shows His love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what it means for us. Christian, are you willing to take the Word of God seriously? Do you trust that He is more wise and more good than you? If you do love life is going to flood back into your relationship with God. Insecurity is going to die. And though you're wrestling with God and what He calls you to do, there's going to be wrestling. Confidence is going to begin to grow again. Christian, do you know that you have nothing but the love of God? Do you have, know that you have nothing but the love of God in Christ? That He is the bread of life? That He is the living water? That it will feed your soul? That it alone is life-giving? That He is resurrection? And when you get that all of your salvation comes from all outside of you and is none of your own doing, it's going to produce humility. And you're going to realize that all the things that are impressive about yourself are not that important. And that when we get too busy thinking really highly of ourselves, it makes us less delightful to be around. And we'll grow in humility. If you're here tonight and you don't know what you think, not sure, not sure that you believe you're on the edge, you're a skeptic, you don't believe. I love you, I'm glad that you're here. And I can't imagine the kind of questions you have from encountering judges. It's crazy. And I would love to get coffee with you and answer these questions. And here's the frustrating thing. I have less answers than I think I do. Ask the interns. What I'd ask you is this. What if you were loved this way? What if you didn't have to prove yourself to you, to Stanford, to your parents, or to God? What if you didn't have to prove yourself? What if He is willing to do the work of salvation for you? 
What if he forgives you? What if he is the main actor in your story? What if he is trying to say to you, I'll do the work. Let me provide the way. This stuff between us, all the things that are between us, you don't want to call it sin, but that's what it is. I'll absorb it because I love you. What if that's what he's telling you? Let's pray.